Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with Steve Krein, and this is our Free Zone podcast. And we're just having an extraordinarily fascinating three-part series. This is number three with Keegan Caldwell, who is the founder of one of the fastest-growing law firms and perhaps the fastest-growing IP firm in the world, intellectual property firm in the world. And for the last hour and a half, we're discovering why that's so. <laughs> so anyway, one of the things that we talked about before we started this session was what's the big picture right now? Because you've been seven years growing your firm very, very quickly, and I'm sure it keeps you busy. But you've got to have some thought about what the big picture is of what's just happening in the startup world, because you're fascinated with startups that will grow quickly and profitably. The other thing is just, is the world changing? Because a lot of world events have changed. There's been political change, economic change, technological change. So to the degree that you can spend time thinking about that, what would you say are some fundamental changes in the application of your specialty from year one to year seven, where you are right now? Mm. Great question, Dan. So, you know, the biggest changes from year one to year seven, I mean, we started off knowing that we wanted to find the most monetization type opportunities for intellectual property and to integrate with companies. But I think that that just became more well-defined over time. And, you know, other things, at least from the start that aren't exactly related to IP for me, you know, as an entrepreneur, just when I first got started was I didn't understand the value of morale that I do today, right? So when I first got started, I just assumed that morale was, uh, I couldn't worry. I couldn't afford to worry about that. I just needed to create value for customers, right? And then I learned the hard way that morale was very important in the workplace. And if I was able to keep morale high here at the firm, that we could do much better work for our clients and have it be a much more enjoyable experience. I think more importantly, though, that in the last seven years, we've had multiple presidents here in the United States and you know a lot of political changeover, a lot of financial highs and lows and the pandemic also. And all of those things have really driven innovation for us and really helped drive our growth. And I guess the most important thing from that to know is that IP is a business asset. And it's a business asset that whether it's an economic peak or an economic valley, it holds its value, right? So like if the stock market takes a crash, the IP value is still about the same, if not higher, right? Because it's an intangible asset that can continue to go up. It's an edge that you can use. It's one of the things that you can use reliably in a volatile market, right? That you can't do otherwise. And you know, to that end, intangible assets have become even more increasingly important over the last seven years also. This is a great statistic, and I love this. So in the 1970s, over 80% of the value of the S&P 500 you know, was not an intangible assets. It was made up of, you know, the real estate holdings that you had or, you know, in all of your tangibles, right? Where like in 2021, less than 20% of companies are made up of that and more than 80% up is made up of its intangibles, right? And so there's been a massive shift towards the value of in intangible assets and, and large companies in the S&P 500 have taken, you know, advantage of things like that 
IBM is an example of a company that is well known. They file usually 10,000 plus patents a year, but they also have like a couple billion dollar licensing program that they make a lot of money with. GE has a similar program, right? Kodak. These were a lot of, yeah, exactly. Kodak, who were replaced. I mean, their main product was completely obsoleted by digital cameras. One of our clients is deeply connected with Kodak through someone that he's married to, and she was the internal IP lawyer for about five years. And it was their only profit area was licensing their IP that had been built up over a hundred years. Yeah, that's actually a great example of a company that failed to adapt and from a technological perspective and held on to some they're like, no, listen, we've been at the top for so long and they just were kind of a failure to it. I can see the guy who came up with the idea that you could take pictures without film presenting the idea to the board of Kodak saying, let me get this right. If your idea comes to fame, we don't sell any more film. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that liberating? And then he got liberated. Yeah, I'm sure that they were like, please show this man the exit. Yeah. And then hopefully he had some IP on those things and went off to go be wildly successful somewhere else. But you know, the ability to leverage the empirical data that we have, right? Like knowing the power of intangibles, the ability to be able to raise capital. Then that's one thing that we're actually on a tangent real quick with that. You brought up when we were not on the air talking about how much money there is available right now in the United States. And I think that this is very much true. I think that, you know, we see this even now where the stock market is not doing very great, that there are so many new venture capital, private equity shops. I had a friend just call me a couple of weeks ago and was like, please find me a company. If you can find me any company that's got, you know, 5 million EBITDA, right? Then I've got 30 to hundred and I need to do two or three of those by the end of the year. Right. And I get like multiple phone calls like that from, from people that are looking for, you know, very particular types of investments and because there's so much capital now where it used to be that, you know, this was the buyer and the seller's market scenario, right? It used to be where the clients of mine were like beating their head against the wall, trying to find these opportunities. Right. And it's not that they're not always easy to find, right? It's always, you know, you have to get out there and try to find the right fit. But I do feel very confident that there's a a generous flow of money out there. It's just, it's finding what those opportunities are and then balancing them with whatever objectives that the client has, right? So, you know, a lot of them, you know, how expensive is the money, right? Is the big question a lot of times for people. And, you know, if you can get more interest, and I think that people can, the more interest that you're able to get from people, and I think that you can leverage IP to get more interest, then you can get competing offers, right? And I think that that's very useful information for for new startups to have, because I think they can get really frustrated out of the gate, Yeah. Well, I think there's, and maybe because of how you came around this from big company clients and mm-hmm. your own background, I wonder if, and maybe this is your startup division, the Caldwell Startup, if there's not an opportunity to step back and be blissfully ignorant again yourself about how to make this really enticing and exciting and almost invigorating versus like feeling like it's going to be honest which is what it feels like, by the way, as you know, going to most law firms or accounting firms or a lot of, you know, it's like, or they delegate it out to somebody else. But because you're an entrepreneur, because of all the things you just said on all episodes are so important for entrepreneurs to know, I'm wondering if there's not a really oversimplified on-ramp and toolbox 
that you can create, or maybe you're already doing this with the startup division, that makes this a really fun would be the wrong way to think about Funny it. Funny you should mention, Steve. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> An energy providing experience. Yeah. Like I mentioned that experience of coach, like you go in the first time and it's not transactional feeling, it's transformational. It's like, right? Yeah. And then you go every quarter and sometimes you have explosions and sometimes you have like integrations, right? Where it's like, I had my head exploded last time and now it takes me a couple quarters to integrate my life into that explosive moment. And I'm wondering if that's not the same opportunity here with Caldwell Startup. I just want to drop a thought from Dean Jackson. It's like, you know, who not how came from Dean. It's just that I got to my IP lawyer before he did. <laughs> and I got it into, you know, program form, book form out there. But Dean has one that I've been pondering, and it's that a compelling offer is 10 times more persuasive than a convincing argument. And it seems to me that the law has always been about making convincing arguments. Yeah. And you've just departed from that, and you're into making compelling offers. We're trying to, right? We're also trying to employ, you know, like the be the buyer sort of mentality, which is what we had to do, you know, at the outset anyways, was to find companies that would... Yeah, but you make a compelling argument and absolutely nothing gets sold. You make a compelling offer and money starts moving. Yeah. Well, can you repeat that again, Dan? No, no, I would say the convincing argument, somebody can make a convincing argument to me that negates all my arguments but it doesn't motivate me. And I agree with that. I think it is. It seems to me that I go back to your tangible intangible thing. So if 80% of the valuations are now intangible, how do you make intangible things tangible so that you get a good offer? <laughs> Making an intangible tangible. Yeah. So for us, we've just about gotten there. So, you know, we've been working on trying to package that. We're launching this new Caldwell startup platform, which will be out, I don't know, sometime in the next 30 to 60 days. It should be out in the next 30 days, which will provide access to knowledge and materials for startups that they wouldn't have otherwise. But in the way that we're talking about it today, from a what is the asset value of this and how can we use it to what are the objectives that we can accomplish with this and then how can we use it to accomplish those objectives so i mean half of the battle for that is just knowing you know people come to us with varied levels of experience and they don't even know you know some of them will be like well we have lots of experience with id and then we work with them for a while and they're like oh well, we didn't know any of that we didn't know that you could use it to create value in this particular area and then we have other people that have just you know a zero level of experience and then we kind of work with them side by side to help them learn all those different aspects of things that they can create. And I think that, you know, Steve is trying to propose and challenge me to create this thing that uh, inspired me to create this thing that we're really working towards creating, like that there is a better way to do it for sure. And like, how do we define ourselves from like this old uh, to using some of the tools that we've created to create a very successful platform. You know, the way you explained it today, a potential to make a compelling offer mm. that will motivate them to take action versus a convincing argument about why it's so important. It's interesting. I don't know if you've felt this, and I'm going to use it metaphorically over the last year with crypto and NFTs. 
there's lots of entrepreneurs running around trying to make convincing arguments, but not a lot making compelling offers. And again, just metaphorically, you can stand on the soapbox with the importance of IP and argue and argue and convince and convince or help them do that compelling offer. I think it's an interesting lens Dan put on that around motivating people to take action is about a compelling offer, not a convincing argument. And it's an oversimplification of it. But what we're talking about here is so important because of the mindset that you need to shift into to even hear really what you're saying. I mean, really understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, intellectually, you understand it, but like really to hear it and know how to take action on it is a different ballgame. Yes. And so, you know, and up until now, and I think that this is one of the entrepreneurial you know, humbly, one of the entrepreneurial hurdles, you know, that I face, especially as we've scaled so much, is that I have all of this knowledge and value creation for the IP and the offers in my head. But it's for me, it's like creating this platform so that I can teach all of the new mm-hmm. practitioners and lawyers at my firm to have that same yeah. knowledge and so that they can come at it from a business perspective instead of the overt legal perspective or the overt Science. Sounds like sounds like a good job for a shortcut or a shortcut. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. yeah. I think it was around late 1980s. I did a book called The Great Crossover, and I was talking about that we're in the midst of a crossover, and crossover always takes place in history when you have a fundamental change in the way you can communicate. Okay, so obviously going back a million years, it was when humans could talk to each other and the other species couldn't. That was a crossover. Some were better at others. And then you had writing, which was number two. You had printing, which is number three. And now we have digital. And I gave 1975 as the beginning of the crossover and 2025, a 50-year, I said it's going to take 50 years. And the big change is from a pyramid-shaped organization to a network-shaped organization. One of the things I've kept track of, what are the fastest-growing industries? And for about the last 10 years, the number one fastest-growing industry in the world is IT. Okay, But the number two fastest-growing industry in the world is coaching, of any kind of coaching. And the reason is that technology doesn't coach itself. So the moment you create a new technology, if you don't have a coaching component talking about the compelling offer, I mean, coaching is really how do you get access to the compelling offer of a new technology? So it seems to me after rapid growth for seven years, which were for cash flow, for profitability reasons and for positioning in the marketplace, you're at the point now where you have the mind space that you can say, how do I make the constant success of Caldwell IP into a coaching program for the growth of Caldwell? Yes. Because you can't be the coach. I mean, when you have 25 people, you can be the coach. When you have 250 people, you can't be the coach anymore. Yeah, and honestly, that's a lot of the value that I get from participating in free zone is learning from the other folks that have been in my particular position, you know, growth position before where we've been scaling so much, you know, the last six, seven years that we have reached, a little, you know, another, we're always reaching these new inflection points, but now we've reached one where it's, you know, how do we scale from where we're at and how do we yeah. continue to keep pace of the growth and being able to 
how am I going to multiply the amount of me yeah. <laughs> that, that there yeah. is within the organization? Right? It's and, always the issue, you know, how does the entrepreneur scale? Yeah. And I think that that's what Steve's getting at too. And, and that's why I was thinking about, you know, innovation and we've been talking about innovation and value creation throughout all three of these episodes, right? And they're just so core to, it doesn't even really matter what business it is that people are in, right? Because there's people even in the coaching business that come to me and they say, hey, listen, I think that there might be some IP here. We're not really sure, mm-hmm. right? This is something that it is real IP or that's an area where people wouldn't maybe traditionally think that there's patentable subject matter, yeah. right? But there certainly can be, yeah. right? And it's the exploring and, and you know, as well as anybody, the value of IP to your brand, mm-hmm. right? And being able to protect that. And, you know, you, you speak about it regularly and the value of that for people. And, and I think it's very responsible to do so because it's an easy asset to add that there'll be a return on. And so that, and it dissolves all those dangers in the DOS as yeah. well, right? So like yeah. a lot of the dangers that, you know, will someone be able to sue me? I mean, maybe, but at least it's going to give me some options to be able to stop others. Like we talked about with the monopoly, right? It's going to be able to create some opportunities by being able to create, you know, potential licensing programs or monetization options Mm -hmm. or raising money or, you know, whatever that is, but it really helps dissolve a lot of the liabilities for you. And then it helps you excel and have more. I think uh, there's a thing that I notice with people who are lackadaisical about IP. Like I bring up the topic and they say, you know, I don't really want to get into that, you know. And coach is about 96% services. The vast majority of our entrepreneurs are service businesses. They're not manufacturing, they're not retail. But because you don't want to know about this, you also are not courageous in terms of creating new things. And there's something that keeps you up in the middle of the night when you're thinking about creating a new thing and saying, you know, the moment I start talking about it, somebody's going to steal it. And the reason is because you're completely ignorant about that IP is actually a design feature of creating your new thing. Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought this up because I think it's at the core of what free zone stands for. And we haven't really talked a lot about this yet. And that's, you know, being free to collaborate with whomever I want to be able to collaborate with and not to worry about that. Like, how does IP directly relate to a non-competitive environment? And it seems like that there's gridlock between those two things, but I'm telling you, there's not, man. Mm -hmm. And there's so many examples of this. I'll use a a great example of Tesla. I'll use one that everyone knows because I have a lot of client examples that we could give. But I'll use the example of Tesla as a great example of this is, you know, Elon Musk kind of famously made a tweet in 2019 saying, everyone's got access to our patent portfolio, right? And then also in 2014, he had written, he was kind of referring to this blog post that he'd written in 2014, where he's saying that they're not going to initiate any sort of patent litigation or lawsuit for any party infringing its patents as it relates to their electric vehicles, right? Mm -hmm. And so... There's like multiple aspects to this that I'll digest real quick. But I think the important thing to recognize is that Elon is a master marketer for one, but he's done this in a clever way. He's protected the technology that he did. So he knew that there was a a valuable investment in protecting the IP that he had. He's not just willfully giving away the IP, but he's working in a new area, right? He was working in a new area where he knew that, you know, if there was broader adoption, it was only going to help his company, mm-hmm. right? And the patent system, 
you know, as it was created was to help other people see the innovations of others so that we could become a more industrious Mm -hmm. nation, right? So we could continue to innovate on top of the things that we could see that other folks were doing and to be able to, you know, give some merit and protection to the folks that were creating those things anyways. And that's exactly what I think that he was, you know, trying to do with. Hmm. And that is, you know, really gave other folks the opportunity to hop in and be like, all right, well, cool. We can go ahead and do this. Tesla's probably not going to go ahead and sue us about this. We should probably still get some of our own IP. But I, I think that that is the same thing that I see in free zone. I think it's the concept. Yeah, of- well, I think it's kind of like worry-free innovation in the sense of that you trust the people that you're yeah. partnering yeah. up with and it's handled. It's handled. Some of it's implicit, but a lot of it, I mean, there's just certain ground rules and we've thrown people out of the program because we had a sense they were takers and not givers. In other words, they- that's the second part of what I wanted to say about this, right? And it's not that Elon was like, no, listen, Tesla's never going to sue people that infringe our IP because it's definitely not what he's saying, right? You know, the patent pledge, first of all, only covered 34% of the patents as it related to electric vehicles, right? They have a huge portfolio, you know, that they kind of famously in the last few weeks planned to enforce. He's just tweeting about wanting to hire a bunch of litigators and then he doesn't want. No, thug destroying litigators. He does. He wants street yes. fighters. He yeah, wants yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. saber tooth lawyers. He said, not like these, these firms. Yeah. yeah, he says not. Yeah. yeah, he says, tell me three things you've done, which proves that you're a man eater. I want man eating lawyers. <laughs> he said, I, yeah, I don't want lawyers that are are like the guys at Cooley or Perkins. I want guys that, you know, he, exactly. I want, you know, people that are going to eat babies. We're out for blood now, right? And it gets to your point, Dan. The reason that I think he's feeling that right now is because there's bad actors now right? He wasn't saying, I'm never going to enforce my IP, because I think it was part of the plan probably to end up having to use that all along. But in order for them to excel as a company, he had to have a bigger mindset, a collaborative mindset from the beginning. But now bad actors have come in. That's why he's being so forward about like, all right, that's enough, right? Like now these guys are going to have to go. And as you said, like we kicked people out of free zone, like this isn't just saying, hey, go ahead and steal all the stuff that I came up with. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, let's work together to create a better future. And you should absolutely contemplate protecting your IP, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to work together to be able to create a better future together for our companies. So my other interpretation of, of what he said, which I think is what Dan says now all the time, is that we have IP, we protect it. Don't mess with us, but we're friendly and we're collaborative. Yeah. Yes. No, we're open to collaborative value creation, yeah. but we're not up to yeah. you rating our refrigerator, you yeah. know. Exactly. And so being hyper aware of that, I think the thing that struck me, and, and I'll use this as my biggest insight, two biggest insights from today's session as we wrap up this last episode. One is that IP needs to become like marketing and selling. It just needs to be another part of the business that you just do. It's not you should do, or maybe you'll do, or when you are big enough, you do. It's from the very beginning, like you need a sales and marketing strategy, you need an IP strategy. And I think that just making it normal and natural as that you just need one like sales and marketing, I think will help reframe it as not something that you push off, brush off or wait for. That was that kind of one insight I got from hearing you. The other was what Dan said, and I've heard him say it a million times before, but this time it sunk in because of the context that he was using as you were describing it, 
of making a compelling offer motivate somebody to take action, yes. but making a convincing argument while very good is not going to motivate you to take action. And I think, again, doubling down on making a compelling offer for people to now open up their mindset to making IP another leg on their stool, if you will, mm-hmm. of building their business, just good business to do it. Just like you'd say you wouldn't build a business without a marketing strategy, you wouldn't build a business without an IP strategy. Yeah. Yep. It's better if you say it because it seems, you know, not genuine if it comes from me, Stephen. <laughs> but, you know, I definitely agree with you. You know, I just made it a compelling offer, not a convincing argument. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it goes back to a lot of the things that we've talked about today. Like you want to do that thing. We've made it as a compelling offer, but then getting back to the free zone stuff, it's almost the way that we can begin to create trust with those that we work mm-hmm. with, right? We want to be able to trust the people that we've been working with. So we don't need to look over our shoulder or do anything like that. Right. It's like, if you tell the truth, then you don't ever have to worry about looking over your shoulder mm-hmm. about what you said, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the sort of folks, that's what the free zone is about. Yeah. Advice that I give to entrepreneurs is just, you know, be a decent human being and good things will probably happen, right? For you, Kim, what's your biggest insight from these three episodes that you would say you didn't have setting up the call for today that you kind of come away with that you didn't have? Oh, I would say, well, I mean, the biggest takeaway that I have is really, you know, from what you were saying, Steve, about creating a honed in offer for the startups. I mean, I've gotten good at telling these things over time on calls that I have, but if I can put this on paper and be able to have access, you know, just even on our website to just give the basics to people that I don't even need to necessarily be part of it, right? And that the new practitioners here can be, I need to create and develop more of the platform for pushing my knowledge out more to the masses, right? I can only speak with so many different companies, but we can make that all available on our website. And and we have a lot of other brilliant practitioners that work at our firm that I hope that they're able to adopt a lot of these concepts if they haven't already. Mm -hmm. I would say that you're very timely because I think that we're now switching to a world where the growing value, economic value, And the most exciting environments are those which are masters of intangible assets. You know, I mean, in one way, you can look at the Russian-Ukrainian situation as a clash of a really huge country with enormous tangible assets going up against a very small country that's getting the benefit of the world's intangible assets. It's kind of like the first inaction weapons trade show I've ever seen. Uh, In other words, every weapon maker in the world saying, you know, call Ukraine, we'll give them 12 free, just if they'll test it out and give us a report afterwards. The Russians, the big overpowering country, has massive amounts of hardware that's essentially made worthless by shoulder-held rockets, you know. So, you know, and I think that we're at a sea change in terms of what constitutes value in the marketplace. And more and more, I'm totally in agreement with you. I think it's who you are actually is the biggest value. You know, what your mindsets are, what your behavior is. Are you easy to play with? Are you easy to work with? I think these are what are becoming the key to ever increasing economic value in the marketplace. And 
I think you have your finger really on the pulse with this one particular marketplace specialty. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Yeah, and I, I think that 100% agree with what you were just saying. I think it's that that's kind of like an example of the Web3 mentality as well, like a more community-based approach. I think that we see that proliferated way beyond just the Web3 application. I think that's just a, mm-hmm. kind of a common name that we see. We had to give a name to something to define all of that, but we see it in all other industries as well. And I think there'll be more and more adoption of that, as you say. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I really appreciate all the insights today, guys. And, and I think I have a lot of clarity as to what I need to go do now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Dan, you yeah. want to wrap it up? Yeah, really delighted. I had a real introduction in the 90s from John Farrell in this whole area of the intellectual property protection. We've had some negative experiences where it really sharpened our alertness and our preparation when we introduce something new in the marketplace. But I have to tell you, my whole thinking about this has really taken a quantum leap in the three podcasts we did, Keenan. I'm, I'm really appreciative for you giving us your time. Oh, thanks, Dan. I was a little bit nervous even to come on. So I'm honored that you guys invited me and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah. Podcast four, five, six through. <laughs> <laughs> just, we should just do an intellectual property podcast series. Yeah, yeah. Go back and listen to the Howard Getz and Matt Pinsker podcast that we did. We had them on as guests with my cousins and more importantly, the Abe Lincoln Scholar. Yeah. I don't know if more importantly, but. Yeah, no, it was the, the, <laughs> the Abe Lincoln Scholar. All um, I remember is that he said that I was a good historian. That's the, <laughs> exactly. I, I don't remember anything else that was said. It was like, exactly. I yeah. give Dan an A-plus on his grasp of history, and I said, uh, I have no idea what else was discussed except that. You could do no wrong. That was a compelling <laughs> offer. <laughs> Take care, guys. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you.